Hello, and welcome to Weekly Monotony, the official podcast of the entertainment blog DailyMonotony.com. And it, uh, it has has the intro here, so you can, uh, it's, uh, it's definitely a podcast, but uh, it, it's not a weapon. I am Dustin England, and I apologize for that horrendous South African accent. <laughs> I am Scott. Scott and I do smell like cat food. And I'm now your regular guest appearing guest host, Todd England. All right. Still without a convincing tagline. That's it's okay. It's it only only makes you cool, and if you don't have one, you're stupid. So <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> All right. Well, this. So my tagline is I don't have one, so I'm stupid. Sounds good. This week we're reviewing District Nine by Neil Blomkamp. But before we do that, as always, we're going to get into a little bit of what we've been consuming in the world of entertainment. For the past week, Scott, uh, anything interesting you've been watching or playing over the past week? Uh, yeah, I, I did go and pick up the the not widely watched but should be uh, the Hurt Locker. Ah, uh-huh, yes. Um, which I really don't have anything to say about other than that's a spectacular film, a particularly good take on the war movie, and everyone should go and see it. Yeah, it it really is. It's uh, it's surprising that an Iraq war movie can be made without being political. And yet, still be a little political, and yet still be like an amazing action film. And is made by a woman too, so that's pretty right. Awesome. <laughs> and, and I mean, it's a film in which you actually get to see soldiers pretty realistically soldiering. Yeah. As opposed to most other movies where it's all very glamorous and exciting, you know, starship troopers. Yeah, no, it it really does. I think when I saw the Hurt Locker, it was the first time I ever felt like I truly appreciated how insanely difficult it must be to fight a a war in an urban area where there's like two bad guys out of like you know 3000 people and you just can't like start shooting randomly at people because they go out on the balcony to watch what's going on yeah hurt locker is uh, definitely amazing i think it's out in a wider release now but uh, if you get a chance to see it it's a absolutely spectacular film i think it's probably one one of my favorite action films of this year so far so I, I think it may be my favorite film of this year. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely it's going to be up there. I'll be interested to see how it it ranks in at the end of the year. Uh, so Hurt Locker, anything well, else? Well, there are ten Oscar nominees. <laughs> That's true. Uh, anything else? Uh, I've been watching a lot of MythBusters thanks to Instant Watch and my friends at Netflix. Um, it's it's really it's it's really a show I appreciate as sort of a scientist type. Uh, but in large doses, it gets extremely sort of disinteresting. So, so I found, you know, I was a huge fan of Mythbusters when it came out and for a long time afterwards, but I definitely found that the last time I tried to watch Mythbusters, I'd sort of, I don't know, maybe I reached my cap of what I can stand of Mythbusters anymore. It, it To me, it seemed like, especially the the non-main two dudes myths, like the little side myths with the, the three... The build team. Yeah, with the three uh, non-main people... Those those ones like seem to get more and more ridiculous to the point of like like let's try this really stupid myth and it's like well obviously that's not the case and of course it ends up being not the case and yeah, you're like wow but, that's a waste of time. Have you ever gone it? <laughs> have you ever gone and watched other shows that have spinned off like the um, they had that show it was like the the Crash Masters yeah. or the Smash Smash, Smash Lab or something. Yeah, it's like if you ever watched any of the spinoffs, the worst of the spin or the worst of the sidekick experiments on MythBusters is better than the best spinoff series episode that i've seen on some of those other shows yeah, like they're totally like 
oh, what will happen if we execute really known experiment with really known results? Right. Like, oh, look at this, the house and the earthquake collapsed. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, at least for the sidekicks in Mythbusters, they're still doing things that you probably haven't seen before, like trying to make a diamond with explosives or some other weird, you know, blow up a house with popcorn. Yeah. Sure, it's a little off the wall, but... It's fun to watch, kind of. I guess. I just one of the things I loved about Mythbusters, at least the early episodes of Mythbusters, is that they actually they put out myths where you're like, "Gee, you know, I, I actually don't really think I know what the answer to that is." And it was fun to see them, you know, clobber known myths or popular myths. And it was it's fun to see them do things that you weren't quite sure of what the outcome was going to be. But I felt like I feel like what it came down to is they started doing a lot of things where it's like this this lets us explode something. And that's about it. The actual myth isn't really that, that interesting, and that's where I started losing interest in the show because there's no, there's no okay. mystery to it. Then just just to keep this fun, uh, rather because I still think Mythbusters, despite maybe where it is now, is still one of the best shows that's been produced for TV uh, in a while. Top three favorite myths, and I'll get things kicked off so that you can't. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Top three that I can that I can remember off the fly because I haven't thought about this ahead of time, so this is just off the cuff. So I'm sure there's other great ones I'm going to omit. Uh, one is that the myth about shooting bullets into water, water really does uh, slow down even the biggest of bullets. When Jamie, I don't know if you remember, he shot yeah. that big 50 we caliber shot, gun. shot a 50 cal sniper pool. rifle into the pool and like it didn't make it past like 10 feet. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wow, okay, that's really good to know yeah. um, in case I'm running from snipers. Uh, <laughs> another myth that was good to know is that when you shoot an air tank, a scuba tank um, straight on and puncture it it doesn't just like blow up like you see in the movies right well they they, they uh, shot a propane tank and even shooting it with i think tracer rounds like just that's right didn't do anything so that was good to know right so, <laughs> so, I'm running with so my when, scuba you're, tank, when you're trying so to escape away. from from the bad guys and you shoot the propane tank and it just like causes like an air leak and they're like wow <laughs> what, what was that <laughs> Like, dang it, it's supposed to explode. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no! (laughs) If only I'd watch Mythbusters! Um, And then one of the cooler, like, off-the-wall myths, ones that I just wouldn't have needed to know otherwise, is that you could really make one of those pie-crete or those frozen newspaper boats and actually navigate it through the ocean. And in that episode, I'm not sure if you've seen it, they basically built a boat out of frozen newspapers, essentially is what it was, and it was strong enough to actually mount a motor and go off into the ocean in Alaska, granted, cold waters, uh, right. and successfully navigate for a fair period of time. So that was one of those sort of off-the-wall, would-have-never-guessed it would have worked, cool myths. So that's my top, off the top of my myths. How about you guys? Uh, one of my favorite ones, and this was, I think, a more recent one, was the can a... Can an airplane take off on a conveyor belt? And it's it's one yes. it's one of those things that it, it kind of boggles the mind to some degree because you think like well if, you know it's going forward at this rate and the conveyor belt's going backward at that way well it's just gonna be staying still right because it's rolling on the ground until it takes off and it was one of those things that you know it, it's hard to get your mind around until they actually tell you what's going on they're like no it's not rolling on the ground it's moving through the air and the wheels are just touching the ground and it's so hard so hard to conceptualize but then when you watch them do the test you're like wow that's that, that almost you know blows the mind uh and yet it's very simple physics uh, so i i really like that one because i was i definitely had a hard time understanding uh exactly why why you couldn't like you know have a conveyor belt keep a plane perfectly still sure so that was a really cool one of the recent ones they've done uh, uh what's what are some other good ones scott do you have some some favorites well I mean, I don't know if I have any distinct favorites. The, the thing that irritates me the more is when they do something particularly wrong. Like, 
Um, <laughs> like, and we're like, back like to the, the Archimedes death ray, which they went and revisited, I think, twice. Yeah, like three times. <laughs> yeah, um, simply because, you know, I guess either they're not willing to push it far enough the first time or, you know, well, it's, they... What's something where they, they do something and they didn't quite get it right and then they have, like, a team from MIT say, like, hey, look at this, we we caught something on fire with mirrors. <laughs> so... But and, and I mean, also, they, in my opinion, I think they tend to take their own expertise a little bit too far for granted. Um, in a case where they do a lot of miss, which by consulting, you know, somebody with a little bit more knowledge, not necessarily an expert in the field, but just somebody else, they would be able to point out a very easy way to conduct a test. Yeah, that would answer their question. But I will say, at the end of the day, the show is is entertainment. I mean, it, and we, we're not. Produce science lab TV, and that uh, certainly Jamie. I'm not so sure about Adam, but Jamie is very much you know the epitome of the hands-on trial by error sure. kind of guy. You know what the most you know the simplest path to the solution kind of guy, and I I really uh, admire his sort of innovative on his feet wit to just come up with solutions that aren't by the textbook. You know sometimes they are more interesting than what you might produce if you knew the textbook textbook answer. Um, so I don't know. I, I've actually been impressed they've survived this long. I'll give you that they've probably reached perhaps their peak and they're on their decline, but I think they've got some... Uh, there's still a lot of good myths out there I'd love to see them do. No, I, One in particular, I don't know if you guys have myths that you have not seen attempted yet, but I don't know if they've done this. I've never seen it, but I'd love to see them test the myth about flying a kite next to a power line. And we know we're all told as kids that if you fly your kite and it touches a power line, it's like it's going to kill you, right? We get the little cartoons right. as kids. But I'd like to see him do it. Will, <laughs> will it just burn up your rope or will it, the kite touching the power line actually kill you? I'd like to test that one. Yeah, I, that would definitely be interesting. Yes, you should send it on their website. But uh, no, I, <laughs> well, I, I would, here's, here, here's, here's what I would, I would put around it. I would say Mythbusters is definitely a good show, and I think it's still is a good show. I think I've just had my fill of Mythbusters. It was like Junkyard Wars. That was a really good show, and I watched it a lot. And then at one point, I was like, you know what? I'm, I've, had, I've had enough. I'm ready to move on. Even even though the concept is still intriguing to me, I've just had enough. Fair enough. That's because you didn't have a crazy British guy going, next on Robot Wars. <laughs> 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 All right. Uh, so, so anything else you've been watching or playing, Scott? Uh, no, 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 no. That's, that's all the media I could ever consume in a, week. <laughs> in a single week. All right. Uh, Todd, do you have anything uh, interesting you want to talk about? News items, stuff you've watched, stuff you played? I don't have much to bring this week, so I won't waste much time. And I'm, I'm sure at some point in the future, our, our wonderful chairman, the host of this podcast, will <laughs> deem it to talk about the up and fall TV season. But I will mention, just because I've noticed it this week, that... Uh, I've seen some of the new previews for some of the new shows coming up, and, and this is commentary is not so much to say about the quality of those shows, but just the volume. I think ABC alone, and I think ABC is leading the pack here, is introducing something like 11 brand new show concepts this fall, all of them in the September time frame, which is just crazy to me. I mean, I know we talked about some of them last week, like the Flash Forward series and the V series, both of which have alumni from Lost, but... They're introducing a ton of new series, and I was looking at some of the other broadcasters, and I think CBS is introducing, like, three new series. Hmm. Uh, there's a new, I guess, Medium, I think, is familiar to me, but they're calling it new. Huh, uh, they're CBS is introducing a new version of NCIS, so they're going all CSI <laughs> on us, and they're introducing NCIS Los Angeles right. um, and a couple <laughs> of other you know, weird things, like a new comedy accidentally on purpose, but right. they've already got 
comedy's pretty well shored up. Yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> NBC has got some crap. I haven't looked at it much. They have three shows. Fox has got a new cartoon. They're still doing new cartoons. They're that's doing right, a the... Cleveland show, a spinoff from yeah. uh, from yeah, uh, Family Yeah, I thought Guy. I saw they were doing two new uh, Seth MacFarlane shows. Uh, so they're clearly still trying to, to edge out that sort of, I guess, to, male to milk, 18 to 34 market. Milk that, that cash cow as much as they can. It's like the one step before you get to Spike TV is Fox, apparently. Yeah, it's I think the, so. Uh, yeah. Spike TV light. But they are bringing back Fringe, so I'll give them some That's good. some leeway because Fringe really left it a high point for me la- at the end of last Especially season. Especially with the... But here ABC, I mean, I don't know what they're thinking. If they just want to get in ahead of the game uh, or they just think that they've got, they're not sure about anything, so they just want to put everything out there up front and see what makes it to Christmas. I think they're but taking the got... uh, shotgun approach to programming it's just like throw it all out <laughs> what do you like what do you like <laughs> <laughs> tell us tell us tell us please we need to know we couldn't decide so, uh, at, at some other point i'm sure we'll talk more about which of these new shows are actually worth watching or which ones we're most interested in watching but for anybody who's going to be watching or dvring probably more appropriately some of this fall content uh, abc is probably the channel where you may want to start clearing out some room for because there may be a handful of shows in here you may be interested in at least trying the first few episodes out before you decide if it's worth keeping. Yeah, definitely. And we'll, we'll get into more of that TV goodness as it starts to come out. Uh, so what I've been watching... This week, oh, I think. This week is uh, the next Top Chef starts this week, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so make sure your DVRs are set for that. Yes, yes, indeed. New Top Chef in Las Vegas now, right? Vegas is the place this year. Yeah. Cool. So what I've been... <laughs> <laughs> what I've been watching and playing this week... Uh, uh, so... First off, just get some video game stuff in there. What I've been playing is I'm playing a couple demos that came out on the Xbox Live Arcade. One of them is a uh, it's an arcade game called Splosion Man. It's made by Twisted Pixel, the same people who made this game called The Maw, which I, I played at PAX last year and was actually really really well done for a very small budget kind of independent studio thing. So Splosion Man is this it's a really simple concept game. You basically it's this really carty sort of cartooning uh, or cartoony. Uh, what we call a two and a half D, meaning it's really a two D platformer, but it's done in that three D style. Uh, you play this science experiment, which is basically this guy whose only power is he can explode, and he basically just he explodes to get around the level. Uh, but what's really fun about this is, uh, and that's that's all you do is you run and you explode, and there's every button you press causes you to explode. In fact, if you bring up the little button mapping, it's really funny because like every button just says explode on it. <laughs> And uh, it's the cool thing about this is this game really plays almost like a Sonic the Hedgehog game. They they do a lot about you building up speed, and basically what you do is you run through this level. You're trying to escape from this secret lab, and it's all done with these kind of funny, quirky humor elements. But you use exploding to basically like jump from level to level and sort of get you going. And uh, they do a lot of stuff where they try to get you to combo the, your explosions together, and you can only do like three before you have to touch the ground and recharge. Uh, but it gives us just this really good sense of speed going on, and uh, there's there's a little bit of puzzle element to it and a little bit of difficulty to it, but it's not so hard that it's like unapproachable, like a Mega Man Nine kind of platformer. Uh, and I just found it to be hilariously entertaining, so uh, I I definitely recommend it. Uh, go check it out on Xbox Live Arcade if you have an Xbox 360. Uh, play the demo, and it's I think it's only ten dollars to play the full thing, and it's apparently you can play it co-op too with other people, so. Uh, fun little game. I love to see people uh, doing innovation in that 2D platforming world. I don't really feel like we've gotten a lot in that in that genre for a long time. So, so Splosion Man, definitely worth checking out. The second thing I played is a demo that came out last week for a game I'm really looking forward to. In fact, it's the next big AAA title coming out 
for any console, and that's Batman Arkham Asylum. So during E3, this was a game I pegged as a game I was really excited about. Uh, it's essentially it's a Batman third-person action game, so sort of like a beat-em-up game, mixed with the, sort of a strategy adventure element to it, uh, where you get to use Batman's sort of stealth and tools of detective work to take out these big rooms of guys in, in very clever Batman-y ways. Uh, but what's really cool about it is uh, it has all the voice actors from the Batman, the animated series, uh, television series from back in the 90s. So playing through this game and hearing people like, you know, Mark Hamill doing the voice of the Joker and uh, uh, the original Batman voice, and, like all the side characters having their original voices being played is just, to me, it's just that wonderful extra little bit of nostalgia that makes this game uh, so much more interesting. Uh, so I played the demo. I thought it was really fun. Uh, unfortunately, you don't really get to see too much of what's in the game from the demo. You get a little bit of the action beat 'em up kind of style. It's very much a like almost like a rhythmic time-based beat 'em up thing, where as you press buttons with a certain rhythm, you sort of build up a combo, and you can get to the point where you're just kind of jumping between guys and like smacking them down. And it's uh, that that's really satisfying and really fun. And then the second part of this demo is they put you in this this big room with four guys, and they all have guns. And, of course, you're Batman. You never carry a gun. And your goal is to take out all these guys without getting killed. Uh, but the cool thing is you can swing up into the rafters and kind of hang on these gargoyles and uh, use this little Batman detective vision thing, which lets you see through the walls and see, like, these little skeleton outlines, like X-ray vision stuff of where people are. And you can kind of plan out your techniques to try to, like, get people to move in places so you can take them all out. And so I started off this room by uh, going over this gargoyle and waiting for this guy to like walk underneath and you can drop down from the gargoyle like grab the guy pull him back up and like tie him to the gargoyle so he's just hanging there and I like swung off to another place and everyone came and con like went up went up to find this guy who was hanging there I jumped down go in this into this sort of underground grading area and then as people start to t resume their uh, patrols as a guy like walks over it I like, jump out grab him pull him down and like slowly stealth take out all these guys and it was it was really fun because it really did offer a bunch of different ways that you could go about doing this kind of take down these people and of course they have guns so if you ever get caught in like their sight they can kill you really quickly so it's not it's not just where you can run around and beat up people you have to be a little strategic about it so uh, anyway this game is looking really fun it's coming out uh, later in August, so definitely a game if you're interested. If you you know if you like the Batman series, if you're interested in a, sort of a strategy-based action third-person game, uh, this looks like it's going to be a pretty cool game. We'll have to see how the reviews look when it comes out later this month. Uh, have, you, have any of you guys heard anything about Batman? I've been following the um, the the kind of blog coverage of it in the demos. I haven't played it yet, though. I re this is one I'm really interested in playing because it's looked interesting to me in the in the coverage. Um, but it's looked like a much darker portrayal of Batman, much in the vein of the last movie. And also, I haven't been able to really gauge, you know, where does it fall in terms of difficulty? Is this like a one of those, like almost like Fear, where right. it's very much a Twitch game? Or is this more about a game that kind of builds a story? I, it looks like this game uh, is going to be. Have you got this demo? Which kind of game this is? It looks like it's going to be a little more story based. It's not quite so twitchy. And I actually found the the uh, the difficulty to be pretty good. Like when you're just plain old fighting people, that's actually pretty easy. It's really easy to sort of button mash your way through those sequences. And then when you get into this kind of strategy kill room, it's I actually found it. I mean, it's it's hard to the sense that if you if you screw up and you get caught in front of these guys, they will shoot you down pretty quickly. But the fun part is you really can 
use the elements of stealth, the sort of stuff that Batman can do to your advantage, and it becomes much more of a, you can take it really slowly, you can plan things out, and then kind of execute your, your takedown of these guys. And I found that to be really satisfying with, without being too hard and with also out being like so easy that you're just running through and, and bashing guys on the head. Cool. So yeah, uh, it looks like a fun game. I'm, it's actually like the next big AAA title I'm, I'm looking forward to maybe purchasing. So. And the official release is? Uh, I want to say it's August 19th, so I think it might, yeah, it might be this week. But don't hold me to that, Internet. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's something <laughs> like that. I think, it, I think it might be coming out this week, a, a Tuesday or Wednesday release. Okay. So that's what I've been playing. Uh, what I've been watching is, uh, so over this weekend, I went on Netflix and caught a couple, couple films I've seen from my distant past, but stuff I wanted to see now with the, the eyes of an, of an older, young adult, I guess. Uh, one of them is one of my favorite movies as a child, and I'd sort of forgotten how much I love this film. Uh, it's a 1987 film uh, that's produced by Steven Spielberg, but not directed, called Batteries Not Included. Uh, Todd, do you, <laughs> do you remember this film? <laughs> Yeah. So basically, the premise is is there's these little like robot, alien UFO things from another planet who come down and and uh, basically help this this uh, building this this uh, condemned building that's trying to be taken over by this by you know this evil construction company that wants to tear down this old New York building and put up their big fancy new sky rises, and basically these this sort of you know ragtag group of uh, funny people like this old couple and this this uh painter and this this uh spanish woman who's pregnant they all kind of get together and uh uh join up with these little uh these little like alien robot things that come down to help them and what surprised me is you know looking at a film and so this was all done before cg was ever used uh this was all done using practical effects so using model work uh compositing with model work uh, a little bit of stop motion animation uh, and a little bit of puppetry and i'm surprised how well that lives up to nowadays like it, it, the stuff actually looked really good for a 1987 film uh, i was surprised like how the compositing like really didn't even show its age that much like i could have bought this as a film that well I mean, you know definitely not a film that came out in the cg age but it's still you know i i bought the characters that they uh, they managed to produce with these practical effects and uh to me that just that really says something about the how how good practical effects used to be, and I, I really wish I we could see more more crossover of practical effects and CG than we do now, because back then it was like practical effects and stop motion, because that's the only thing you had. But now it's like, why can't it be practical effects and like a little bit of CG, but more practical effects? So yeah, uh, for sure. Batters not included. It's a it's a great film. It's I I enjoy it though, probably more because of the nostalgia factor. But what what can you say? It's it's fun. <laughs> right in the vein of um, of uh, Johnny Fife. Yes, of, of Short Circuit it is definitely of that era of film. Cool. Uh, and August August twenty fifth, the Batman 25th, Asylum. Okay. So next next week, next next Tuesday. Yep. Okay, so I have one news item I want to talk about, and that's because it's very personal to a thing that happened to me this past week, uh, and that is uh, so this is a Game Informer story uh, via joystick. Uh, that is, uh, a new survey was done of 5,000 Xbox 360 console owners, and it turns out from that survey, 54.2% says they've had either a Ring of Death or E74 hardware failure, where basically the box completely broke down. 
and I say this is personal to me because this weekend, my my second Xbox. So I've already had one red ring on me, but my the one I got back that was supposedly repaired, red ringed again and died. And really, it's like I I know this is an old story because like the the red ring concept is so built into the Xbox mythos that it's it's kind of goofy. But seriously, this is my second <laughs> Xbox. They said they repaired it and it died on me. And my warranty, my three year extended warranty, which they did after the they found out the red rings were happening quite quite often. Uh, it got up in April, so no good on the warranty. I called them to see how much it would be to repair it, and I was like, you know what, it's not worth it. So I went out and, and bought an arcade for 200 bucks to replace the one I've got. But anyway... Oh, you, you missed the price reduction. Aren't they reducing the price on the Elite, like, next week or something, or this week? They might, but I don't need a, another hard drive or anything. And the, the arcade actually has an HDMI port now, and it has the BenQ drive back. It has everything you need, except it doesn't have, like, a big hard drive, which I already bought a big hard drive for my old 360, so it was easy to transfer over. So how much is an arcade these days? Arcade is two hundred dollars now. Which so if you have if you have a hard drive from a let's say dead three sixty yep. and you're out of warranty, then you can pick up an arcade for two hundred, slap your old hard drive in, and you're good to go. It's basically an elite now. Yep. Okay. Cool. So uh, so that was good, but still, good grief! The second time my three sixty is is gone out, and actually here's a, a little bit more interesting thing from this story is that even though fifty four percent of the people reported that they'd had a hard drive or had a Xbox three sixty failure, uh, they said at the end, oh gosh, what's what's the number? They said only three point eight percent of the participants said that they would never buy an Xbox three sixty again due to the high rate of failure. <laughs> so, I don't know I find I find those numbers to be hilarious. Like. It's guaranteed, almost guaranteed, that your Xbox 360 is going to fail if you buy if you bought one two, two years ago or maybe one and a half years ago or older. Not but guaranteed. Flip a coin. It's uh, actually I almost wonder. Like Todd, you've had a, a, a Red Ring of Death failure, right? Yeah. I don't think I've talked. <laughs> I don't think I've talked to anyone who bought a 360 from at least two years ago who's not had a Red Ring of Death. I don't. I don't think it's a question of if. I think it's a question of when. <laughs> You know, though, what's funny is the the box they sent back to me. Actually, I've always been expecting it to die, and I've actually I've, I've actually been really unhappy with the box they mailed back to me. And right. I've thought about <laughs> sending it back in the past because it had a much 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 louder drive <laughs> right. than the one I sent to them. The one I sent to them was like whisper quiet. I could stand it on its end, no problem. The one they sent back to me actually destroyed my Call of Duty Four disc. <laughs> I had it standing up because it scratched the disc yeah. to hell. It's like. Uh, it's like I send you one because it fails. You send me back another with a bad part. I mean, I agree with you. It's a little frustrating in the hardware quality, uh, and it, it's only highlighted by the fact that I was recently at a, a family event a few weeks ago. We drove out to see, to see some family, and we went by uh, one of my wife's grandparents' houses, and they have an original Nintendo. And I'm talking right. not not like the changed case version, the original original NES. Right. And only and for years and years for Christmases and Thanksgivings, you know, every all the kids have kind of you know managed to make it work, right? You have to maybe blow on the cartridge a few times and, <laughs> do, and pound the power button. Do a little but voodoo, works. but it works. <laughs> but this last time we were up there, despite all the years of voodoo experience we could bring to it, we could not get the games to come on <laughs> in a playable format. So uh, I will tip my hat to the Nintendo console and say I'm sorry. After what 20 years. Uh, <laughs> Your, your time may be up, and even then, it still may be the cartridges, not the actual console, right. but 
Yeah, that, that... Uh, yeah. So an, a Xbox 360 failing in two years doesn't quite stand up to the 20-year-old the Nintendo. The 20-year-old NES. Uh, good point. I so my my question. I mean, I think this says something a lot about the the quality of platform, I guess, that Xbox produced. Not necessarily the quality of the the physical hardware, but the fact that that you know 3.8 percent of the people. Only 3.8% of the people who've had these failures from these people who were surveyed said they would never buy a console again because of the failure. I think it says something about the consoles. Like, like sure, it fails, but I'm willing to spend the repair costs or, or buy a new one just because it's it's such a great platform. Uh, so I think, I think that, that speaks speaks well about what they produced, but not how they produced it. Let's be honest. I mean, Microsoft, I mean, being completely fair, they did a, a really stand-up job in extending the warranty after the, that initial round of problems and, That's true. you know, adding that three-year warranty. I mean, I think that really helped probably settle some of the, the anger that may have resulted because, sure. for the most part, if you were caught in that initial red ring of death way, you get your ex placed for free. So, I mean, in that sense, I think they... They took a hit in the in their bottom line to do that, sure. several billion dollars. Yeah. But I think that helped keep people happy, which is probably better in the long run for them. No, I definitely think they they played that right, even though it definitely did hurt their bottom line. Uh, cool. Well, that's that's the only news story I have, as I needed to vent a little bit on my 360 failure. <laughs> so you you're out of an Xbox now. You're waiting for no no. I actually I went and oh, you, I went out to Fry's and I right. bought bought a a new arcade. So. So I'm I'm now it's it's nice I'm now the new generation I got the quiet BenQ drive so I don't have the sound anymore for my my drive right uh, it's got an HDMI port so I'm I'm actually liking where I am and it's rocking the 1080p it's it is it is quite nice though I actually noticed I think I preferred the VGA the way the colors were handled by the VGA uh, versus the uh, HDMI <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of funny Bummer. but uh, I like it because I don't have to plug in the RCA cable anymore. Cool. There you go. Well, that is, I think, everything. So, I guess our, our prize to our uh, our prize to our listening audience, we you could win one fresh red ringed <laughs> Xbox 360. <laughs> very cheap, very cheap. <laughs> and I'll throw in, I'll throw in a 20 gig hard drive too. <laughs> Only been the used for three years. The first 10 subscribers that subscribe to my Twitter account <laughs> will get a chance at winning a red ringed Xbox. <laughs> you can repair it. Only hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's the ball <laughs> that we got here, folks. <laughs> oh yes, we are we are we're big spenders here. <laughs> All right, let's let's go ahead and move on to the main event, the review of District Nine, the Peter Jackson sponsored, Neil Blomkamp directed sci-fi film. And here's the trailer. The whole world is watching. The course of human history has changed today. The ship appears to be stopping over Johannesburg City. They're spending so much money to keep them here when they could be spending it on other things. At least they're keeping them separate from us. How do your weapons work? District 9, the refugee camp set up to separate aliens from the general population. They told me I was gonna get a vest. Don't worry about the vest, it'll be fine. And the new agents, open the door, please. This is an amazing fight. I haven't seen this type of setup. 
this has got the markings there of uh, so it's it's definitely alien but uh it's uh it's not a weapon <laughs> Okie doke, District 9. Uh, so if you remember from last week, I definitely said uh, prematurely that I thought this film was going to be amazing and wonderful and you should go see it anyway. Now we've all seen it. Now we get a chance to see if I get to eat my own words or not. But first off, uh, Scott, let me throw it off to you and say, what did you think of Neil Blomkamp's District 9? I was actually hoping for more human liquefaction. <laughs> Let's... I mean, I, I would have been happy if I could have just gotten, like, a screensaver of the one Nigerian warlord whose head gets liquefied. <laughs> and I could just, like, play that on loop. I mean, that would be about the same experience as the movie for me, which would be good. Um, no, uh, District 9. Uh, this is a, obviously, a, a, you know, it's probably not out of the question to call this a sci-fi film. Um, I, I, I think so. <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> I'll go that far. Uh, but but it, you know, the thing that me being the person who likes films that are hard to digest likes it at the end is that it really is at least the way that I read it, sort of a commentary on South African history, particularly apartheid. And you know, there's there's one line in the film where they're talking about. And it's no secret there are aliens in this movie, but they're talking about moving some aliens, and uh, there's some sort of documentary-like narration that says several human rights groups were concerned, which makes me wonder why human rights would be worrying about aliens, since it seems like that should be an aliens' rights group that's concerned. But, I mean, that basically gets to the allegory about this film, and that is that this is, at least on some level, a film about apartheid and people wanting to live one place and other people not liking that yeah okay cool todd what did you think of district nine what did i think of district so you nine? Were, so, so um, you were the one who was a little bit skeptical you threw out the, the skeptics hat last time uh uh did did that live through did your expectations live through I will actually take back that skeptics hat oh. um but i won't i won't pin a a, a perfect I will give it a much, much better review than I would have given it based on the trailers from last week. So uh, much of the skeptics act I pinned on the movie from last week was based on some of the CG we saw in the trailers and some of the stuff we saw there and, and worrying that this would feel a bit like a sci-fi movie interpretation. Um, and, and it was funny. I was looking just the other day at the director, Neil Blumkamp's background. Yep. And if if you look at his what he's done up to this point, like you said, he this is really a movie sponsored by Peter Jackson. He doesn't really have a lot of credentials in the industry, but what he does have, kind of oddly, is a lot of 3D animator experience. Yeah. Most of his experience up to this point has been as a 3D animator himself. Mm -hmm. So that sort of only furthered the kind of concern that, okay, we've got a 3D animator. Maybe he's like, oh, I can do 3D animation. We've got low budget. Let me just animate these aliens up myself. <laughs> um, right. That said, once I got into the movie, I was actually not, not at all the, the CG or the animation. The, the one part I thought I might be bothered by, I thought that the uh, the aliens commonly referred to as the prawn in this movie. <laughs> the, um, the racial epithet for the the aliens in this film right which which seemingly seemingly fit well i mean it actually was funny how they i thought it was actually kind of a one of the more interesting notes of how they used that so um 
so fully in the movie right. or so completely in the movie. I don't, I don't even know if there's an actual other name for the aliens at this point. I don't point, think, they, I don't think we so ever much. got an official name for it beyond prawns. So. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it just made things simpler for them. Right. Um, but the way the, the actual human actors interacted with the CG uh, prawn characters um, and the way the – especially that mothership, that mothership that kind of hovers over – uh, Johannesburg for the majority of the movie, how that's composited in and all these kind of handy cam-like shots. Mm -hmm. All of that was done so seeming seamlessly that I actually um, I actually did not have any problem with that. That To me, I don't think ILM did the anim. Is that, is that a correct statement? I didn't check. Uh, but I don't think ILM was no, involved. So, so Weta, the people who did all the special effects for the Lord of the Rings films, I think they've also worked on the uh, Chronicles of Narnia films, they were responsible for doing all the uh, CG work. And of course, being a Peter Jackson produced thing, uh, Weta was the people to come on board. Sure. So, th so I think I would a well -known say, effects I think I would say that if, if ILM did this, it would have been better. And I hate to be like an ILM fanboy <laughs> in that sense, but I do feel like there were a few things where there was like, you know, that, that could have been a little bit better, probably a little bit more uh, natural looking that I think ILM could have pulled off. But Nonetheless, the, the actors did an incredible job of acting off of a movie that had lots of requirement for acting off characters that weren't there. Yeah. Um, the, the, the movie stitched into a largely documentary-style movie, the CG things, in a very seamless way. You know, so it wasn't really – That's. I mean, I think people may need to step back and think about that. That's probably a lot harder than it seems because you have predictable camera movements. You have these sort of shoulder-shaky camera movements that are harder to track, and you're still seamlessly stitching in the CG, the CG character. I think that actually is a, an accomplishment in itself. Um, so CG worries from the trailer, for me, completely uh, vanquished by the actual production. Com that worked really well for me. Um, perhaps what did not work as well is I was not a huge fan of the style of this movie. And I don't know how, how much background you want to give, but I didn't know that this movie was going to be in the documentary-type sure. style. So let, me, let, me describe, um, let me describe the style a little bit for, uh, the, for listeners. Uh, so basically this is, this is it's sort of a, a Neil Blomkamp style that he's made famous in some of the shorts he's done. It's all done basically with a lot of clips of you know documentary style, like Todd said, but a lot of handheld cams... Uh, and also, like, cameras like you would see from maybe, like, a security camera or from a, a uh, helicopter shot, like something you might see in, like, a cop's video or something like that. A lot of that stitched together to make a, you know, general flow of movies, of the movie. So it's, you don't get a whole lot of what you would consider a normal narrative uh, film styling, where it's sort of one camera is, is living in the world and showing you everything. You get a lot of these kind of pieced together, almost like... Almost like you'd see clips from like CNN sort of stuff, and that basically follows that style pretty much the entire way through this film. Right, exactly. It, it sort of and takes a break in the middle. I felt more like the docu the overtly documentary like material, like expert interviews, was sort of limited to the first right, so, third of the so film and the, the very the, last ten or fifteen yeah, minutes. The, the talking head bits are sort of the the intro and the outro for this film, but. Then the rest of the rest of the film, and I, I would say except for maybe a few longer narrative threads, really does do this jumping between cameras, almost as if almost as if you know there were camera cameras placed throughout the environment, and they're trying to capture things in a very naturalistic way. So like this is you know this is a, a heat-seeking camera from a helicopter. This is a parking lot camera. This is a security camera, uh, and that's how a lot of the film is captured, rather than like even just a shaky cam walking behind the character. 
So to this style, I think you guys were were both right. The 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 main interview kind of style is definitely at the end uh, for the most part. In the middle, I think you hit it right, Dustin, where, where there is that kind of cops feel, where there's a camera just falling around uh, a couple of people, and the cameras kind of come from different angles. Uh, though there there are some steady shots, so this is not completely the Cloverfield experience sure. where the whole movie is shot on a handy cam. Right, there definitely is... are fixed camera shots throughout right, this. This is not Blair Witch Cloverfield. Uh, there there are there are multiple cameras used throughout, though though none of them would be considered traditional like steady film film on like a, a jib or a crane kind of thing. Yeah, there's no tracking shot. Yeah. Now, I will say that, uh, kind of funny, I went and saw this uh, with Raimi again, and she actually got a little dizzy, a little sick with this movie. And she didn't get that way with Cloverfield or a number of the other ones where you'd have expected it. And uh, she did get dizzy with that kind of camera style in this movie. It didn't bother me any. Uh, and I was talking to a guy at work today, and he said that he actually took his girlfriend to see it as well, and she felt the same way. She got dizzy as well. So I, I guess to caution to some, especially <laughs> if you're thinking about making this a date movie. Right. Um, maybe not the best. In fact, I would I, say not the best date. I movie. would. I would have uh, to imagine Scott this is probably the, uh, Splatterfest. Yeah, there's, this is probably not the best date film. <laughs> it's definitely the I official think daily monotony movie. date movie recommendation remains 500 days of summer. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> definitely so. This the Splatterfest and the shaky cam. It just does not lead to a a good date movie experience. I will tell you that, and I've heard that now on a, a few occasions. Um, but again, so getting back to my central point, it's just not the kind of movie style I expected, this sort of documentary. And the reason I'm not much of a fan of that is because it reveals to you very early on some, something about the plot or really the end of the movie. So in that first 10, 15 minutes, you kind of already know what's going to happen and, and you, you get it sort of a foreshadowing of, of how the events you're about to see are going to conclude, um, and it's not bad. I mean, it still makes a good movie. It's just I kind of prefer movies that tell a story in a narrative context instead of being sort of dictated with these long kind of interview formats. So it, all I'm saying is that it, for me, that means this is not a Dark Knight for me. This is not an Iron Man sure. for me. It's not as good as those, but it's not bad. So people that said this was like the best movie since sliced bread, yeah, it's good. But this is not for me as good as Dark Knight or Iron Man was last summer. Well, I just I have the the trailer for Slice Bread the movie going on in my head. <laughs> yeah, it's a classic. Now, oh, so, so I, oh, I mean, I was, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I know. Now, Dustin, I mean, you have for the last six months been praising Mr. Blowcamp as the greatest cinematic stylist alive. Uh, let's not go. Let's go Is that, that far. True? I, I, I would, I would say, I, I definitely do. I love fresh takes on things. I love people trying to do something new with the medium, especially because I feel like film has plenty of ways to go. We haven't hit the wall of, you know, must must look like uh, Citizen Kane. I, I think there are plenty of ways you can expand and do cool new concepts with films. It's actually why I love films like Cloverfield and things where that do something in sort of a different way. Uh, but yeah, District 9, so I was incredibly excited about District 9. I thought this film was going to be amazing. I thought it was probably going to be one of my favorite films of the year. And actually, I feel like I fall a little closer to Todd's camp of it i actually i do love this film i i thought it was very well done i would see it again it's it's a good film but it did not capture some it did not capture some of the mystery and excitement that actually the trailers brought out in me like to me one thing i love and i love alien films i have to say that you know alien that genre of like the big giant ship and the mystery of aliens is something i just really love i felt like this film lacked a little bit of that almost because of its style. 
So they present things in a very matter-of-fact way, like, these aliens are here, this is how they came, we're going to tell you a little bit about their history, about what we know, about what we don't know, you know, they're in this slum now, and I almost feel like the, the metaphor for them being like, you know, a poor African people almost takes away a little bit from the mystery of them being aliens to some degree. They're very human aliens in some ways. In fact, these are like the first time you've seen aliens who are basically not, you know, super-powered, you know, super-mental-powered or anything like that that can overwhelm the humans. The fact that, And the fact that they can be put in these slums and sort of beat up and treated like second-class citizens, you know, attests to that. And I think that's a that's a great message to to put across, and that really does come across in this film. But I think I feel like I lost a little bit of that mystery of like this, you know, this huge alien ship and like the weird and creepiness about it. And because of that, I think this film was maybe a little bit less interesting. And I I would also agree again with Todd about the way it was filmed, like the fact that you really didn't have a strong narrative film style throughout this throughout this film and even when you get past the intro bit which is sort of the you know let's explain what's going on let, let's do through these kind of documentary style talking heads explain the situation and you get into the the main narrative which is following this character named uh, uh Vicus Vandemer who's this kind of kind of klutzy almost simpleton uh South African white guy who gets placed in charge of the relocation project of the the he's, the, he's the ultimate bureaucrat. I mean, he's the, the typical epitome of a bureaucrat paper pusher. Right. And so so we get him. He's a little goofy. Uh, he's actually a little funny at the, at the beginning, which I thought was actually a little off-putting for a film of such serious tones. Uh, but anyway, he becomes the main character, and very quickly this, this film evolves away from it being a sort of standard documentary style to being much more of an action film. But I feel because they kept that documentary style especially the style like where they're showing a lot of stuff from like you know security cameras and you know, like heat seeking cameras from helicopters i felt like that pulled me out a little bit of the narrative feel which i would have liked like if this had this been more of like cops handicam the entire time during the narrative segments i feel like i would have liked this film a lot more for some reason to me this film like overdoes it on establishing shots and they have to do that because they have a lot of these like broad helicopter shots where like you know helicopter shot of the slums and like there's an action scene going down there somewhere but you can't really see it because it's like helicopter <laughs> shot of the slums I'm like okay we've got it you've established the environment get back to the action please and uh sure so that's where I think the style kind of had some bumps in the road for me uh but like if I take those things away those gripes away from it I still I still love the story. I love the concept of taking this klutzy guy and this kind of doofus guy that you really you really don't care much about at all and these ugly-looking alien characters that you really kind of creep you out at the beginning and sort of transforming both of those two concepts and those two characters into people by the end you actually, I think, really genuinely do care about. Like, there are definitely scenes in this, uh, in this film where, like, they are basically torturing or basically doing doing things to aliens which are sort of, you know, like, Nazi concentration camp-like. And even though these things are very repulsive-looking, like, I felt terrible. I was like, oh, my gosh, you can't do that to another sentient being. And and even... You, know, you, you raise a good point there, and something that Rami actually brought up about a, a turning point for her in the movie, and something perhaps relevant, is that there's... And I, I guess spoiler cam is... Or spoiler alert is a little bit irrelevant at this point, so if, if you're not interested in details, tune out. So, well, but... Yeah. <laughs> 
but the uh, there's a scene where they where they're they realize because one of the key plot points in this movie, and I'll reveal it here. Key plot point. Key plot point. So spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Is, if, well, actually, <laughs> so before we get into big spoilers, because we really do have to spoil this film, because there's a big plot point change about ten minutes into it. Let's let's before we get into that, so people can get our recommendations. Uh, let's just say how how what our recommendations would be for you know seeing this, don't see it, Netflix it, don't see it at all. Uh, so Scott, why don't you go ahead and give your recommendation for this? Is this something that you should rush out to theaters to see? I think if you're of any of the relevant genres of sci-fi action, what have you, you'll definitely want to see it. Maybe if you're interested in the history of South Africa, you might find it particularly interesting commentary like I did. Um, that said, I don't know if it has a particularly wide appeal. I think there are a lot of people who probably wouldn't like this film very much. Yeah, cool. If they're not somewhat entrenched in one of those genre areas. Sure. No, I, I agree. Uh, Todd, what about you? Recommend? Not a date movie. If you've not seen Julie and Julia, which I haven't either, I'd probably see that before I saw this, sure. especially if you're on a date. But if you're a fan of sci-fi, it's something you'll eventually want to see. But I, this is definitely not the next Dark Knight or the next Iron Man, so it doesn't quite live up to the hype. I would, And I would definitely almost parrot that uh, directly. I think it's this is a great science fiction film. I love the fact that we've had so many good science fiction films of recent. It feels like a genre that I think has been underplayed by the market as something that's fluff, and now we're seeing some legitimate commentary science fiction films. I'd say if you liked films like Children of Men, this is another great film in that vein of science fiction of with a serious tone to it. Uh, and I also think it has some great action moments toward the end. I was definitely uh, uh, really enjoying myself by the end. So, uh, Sci-fi, action, adventure, uh, go see it. Uh, yeah, definitely a recommend, but I agree with Todd. This is not this is not a Dark Knight film where I came out of the film feeling uh, electrified and uh, just loving the film to death. All right, so that said, let's move into spoiler camp territories. Uh, get some of those big plot points out there. Uh, Todd, with what you were saying about the moment where Raimi actually sort of had a turning point about how she felt about the aliens... So first, to set that up, though, perhaps the biggest turning point in this movie and, and the most important spoiler for it is what happens to the lead character. And do you want to set that up? Yeah, let's go. So, so basically, the main character, when he's going through these raids of of this sort of slumville, he accidentally opens this canister of some mysterious liquid, which we don't quite know what it is, uh, and then he's injured. And after that, we find as they take the bandages off after he's been injured that his hand is transformed into an alien hand. And very quickly, we start to realize that this whatever he's been sprayed with is starting to fuse his DNA with uh, alien DNA. And one of the big problems is... Uh, so these aliens are not completely without their technology. Obviously, they have their huge ship, and they also have very advanced weapons. But you can only fire the weapons if you have alien DNA. So none of the sort of exploitive uh, companies that have been, have been trying to glean stuff from the alien culture have been able to use their weapons until this character, uh, the main character, Vicus, uh, starts getting his DNA fused, and suddenly they realize this is a human with alien DNA who can fire their weapons, and now they are starting to use him to fire the weapons, and I think I think it's probably the point that, that you're going to talk about, but I'll let you explain that more. Yeah. And you actually led right up to that point, but before I get there, I'll, I'll reiterate, or I'll underscore that one sort of plot points or the the plot undertones of this movie is that 
this megacorp um is it mnc M or mnu mnu yeah mnu is primarily interested in obtaining the ability to use this alien weaponry and so we see it used a lot in the movie in fact towards the end of the movie it becomes very important but really the, one of the main drivers of the protagonist in the story is the idea that there's this megacorp that will do anything to figure out how to use this alien weaponry and so when the lead character becomes sort of their key to that bridge between humans being able to use alien technology uh, they basically want to turn him into a science experiment to the point of being willing to just kill him alive to cut right. him up and, and you know figure out how can they extract this integration of his DNA with the alien DNA so they can be able to fire all these weapons they've confiscated. Right. And in the process of doing that, they actually strap him into a machine and they just keep putting different alien guns in his hand just to, to see what the guns do. Right. Because they've had guns for this whole time, but they haven't been able to fire them because they haven't had the their requisite alien DNA. And so the turning point for Raimi and the point that was that I'm highlighting here where the movie, like you said, almost even though they're alien characters goes a little too far is they bring in this um, this uh, prawn, this alien character, and he's been spray-painted with an X. Yeah. They basically stand him up in one end of the room, put a gun in the, the an alien gun in the lead character's hand, and a, totally against his will, basically make him completely obliterate, just shoot and destroy this innocent character. And, you know, in some movies, maybe that's fine. Maybe they don't show that. But up to the point where he's about to be just obliterated, the alien is, like, cowering yeah. and kind of showing human-like emotions of, oh, please don't do right. this. Right, like and it, nervous, it's a really not sure what's going on. Yeah, yeah, it's a really disturbing portrayal of just, you know, the callousness of the program that's uh, blowing him away. And and I recognize that that's definitely true to some historical aspects of uh, certainly concentration sure. camps and with the mid um, in that time. But it was a, almost a little too graphic in a... In a um, in a parallel way, way to reality. So even though it was an alien, like you said, the aliens were almost a little too personified where that violence came across as a little off-putting. And, uh, you know, Scott mentioned the Splatterfest, and this movie really does become a Splatterfest when the alien weaponry gets gets turned on. And, and to provide some context for that, I was talking to somebody today. When we say Splatterfest, I didn't really know what to expect from so-called Splatterfest. Right. But for me, it was really as if, from the movie maker perspective... You had a scene, and you had the character in it. You pulled the trigger on the weapon. <laughs> then you, you turned off the cameras. You replaced the character with a balloon filled with <laughs> slime right. from Nintendo. Right. And you strapped explosives to it. And just... You rolled the cameras again <laughs> and then blew up the balloon full of, ex full of the, uh, the, the slime. Yep. Just let it spread everywhere. And that's essentially what happens. The alien weapons shoot, and people turn into exploding balloons of slime. Yep. Um, that, that's kind of where Splatterfest, I think, gets his name in this movie. And certainly one of the first places where we're introduced to that idea is when he blows away this innocent uh, prawn in this scene in the laboratory. Yeah, no, I I agree. That I actually found that to be a very moving sequence. I felt, I think, the whoever the animator was to for doing that alien just nailed it. Because you really do get the sense that, you know, this alien doesn't know what's going on. He's being told, like, like he's trying to hold his hands up, like, saying, like, what am I doing? Don't shoot me, don't shoot me. And... And uh, uh, that was a very disturbing sequence, a very moving sequence for me. And I think that's that's probably one of the points I will remember from this film of really nailing away of, you know, here are these ugly, ugly creatures, which, you know, by all sense of the imagination, we shouldn't have any, like, you know, they're insect-like, they're squid-like, they're, you know, prawn-like. <laughs> like, we, sh we should not be able to <laughs> identify with them emotionally. But at that point, we really do. And you're like, goodness gracious, you can't, 
you can't do that to an alien. It was. I mean, it's, I I feel like that's almost uh, District Nine's ET moment, where they really do have you form an emotional connection with a a very ugly alien creature. Uh, so yeah, I, I think. And, and they push the they push the line in other places. There's a scene uh, in another spot in the movie where they find a a shack in the slums full of essentially babies right. being grown in the alien format, and he essentially is sort of the the lead character again, essentially trumpeting around you know oh we're just aborting these babies you know it's like (laughs) kind of triumphantly aborting a a house full of uh growing embryos for the the alien race and it's another one of those kind of well i get that they're aliens but you know it just kind of seems in bad taste the fact that the fact that they use the word aborting i think really nailed it there that that you get the sense like oh gosh like if it was just like oh we're killing the alien squid sacks like okay that's that's fine no i saw that in aliens that's okay but it's like no we're aborting these alien children you're like oh that's that's a little bit yeah. creepier. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, maybe that's part of the reason this movie doesn't let you leave with sort of that um, energy is because it does hit on so many serious notes um, throughout. And, you know, Scott mentioned, and I think accurately so, that this movie does have a lot of parallels to South African history. Um, I would say at some point, and I think this maybe leads to another discussion, is that they almost spent – maybe drew the parallels too much to South African history. In other words, they kind of forgot they were telling an alien story right. and started telling more of a human story right. because there are a number of problems I had with, for a movie that's supposed to be a quote-unquote smart movie that I had with the way they told the alien story and the alien technology and even one of the main plot points with this whole uh, juice that was saved up in this canister. There are a number of problems I have with the, the logic of that story that I feel like were sacrificed so they could tell this more human story sure. about the aliens in the so slums. So let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about the plot points. And I have a feeling one of the big ones I had a problem with is probably something you had a problem with. And that's the fact that the uh, the character, uh, Vikas Vandermeer, is able to fluently converse with uh, his sort of alien sidekick, which he meets up uh, part of the way through the film, with absolutely no problem. So it's him speaking in, in English and the alien speaking back in, you know, clickety alien language, perfectly well understood by both. And I... That was probably one of the big points I had a hard time swallowing. It was like, really? These guys just I, understand each other fluently? <laughs> I actually didn't have a problem with that. Really? That's funny. Interesting. That one, that one actually was just, I was willing to accept that they'd been in coexistence for 20 years now, and they each could kind of translate to each other's, I guess, listening ears. And uh, it kind of, I, I guess to me, it was kind of the uh, the Han Solo Wookiee relationship. Okay. Like we never had a problem that Han Solo could listen you to know, a, that's actually, a Wookiee go. <laughs> that's, that's actually a fair point. Uh, I think that's a. Okay, I, I'll I'll concede that one to you. That's actually a really good. I, I mean, it, it's like you know, there are places in Beijing where you know you'll speak Cantonese to one person and they'll talk back to you in Mandarin. Sure. And even though they're very different languages, it's like the difference between you know Spanish and Italian. Sure, I guess, but I guess maybe my problem is it, it at first when they were like talking to the aliens and the aliens talking back, they didn't make it seem like they really understood each other, and that there was sort of this silent dialogue of we can just call you whatever and you don't really understand. And then to me, they kind of sure. shifted that into an alien who seemed to understand the the humans with no problem, and the humans seemed to understand him no problem. So maybe it was just the way they they slowly eased in, or they eased into that. And it just didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But okay, I'll I'll buy it. I think the the Wookiee defense works well there. <laughs> <laughs> the Wookiee defense. <laughs> well, but within that, you've hit on one of what was my, one of my major plot problems is that. Um, we have this alien ship, right, floating above Earth, and it's apparently been floating there for 20 years. Um, first of all, I have a problem that these major megacorps seem to have no interest in a gravity-defying spaceship levitation technology. That's a good point. But they were they were extremely consumed with understanding how to use the guns that were on Earth. 
they seem to have no desire to explore the spaceship, which they originally cut, cut, into, cut into themselves right. to get the aliens out. It's like, didn't you think maybe we should just walk around the ship and explore it a bit? <laughs> right. It's, it's and floating. And then further, <laughs> that apparently in this entire ship of aliens, which produced this entire slum, that there's only one smart alien amongst them, right. and that happens to be the alien that our character hooks up with. So that so that um, that one I don't have years. I don't have as much problem with that because I mean it, they're very much sort of like they're sold as kind of insect like people and in insects you usually have a bunch of worker bees and like one queen one smart bug basically so I can buy that I think they sci-fi has done the smart bug and the bunch of you know stupid minions before to the point where I could buy it though they did make the Fair workers enough. seem a little smarter than just like dumb drones so. Which is fair, and I'll grant you that. And that probably was not my my biggest concern. Excuse me, my biggest concern that they had a one smart guy amongst a whole what two and a half million unsmart people. Right. Um, but the fact that it took him twenty years apparently to to scavenge and come up with enough of this magical alien juice to produce uh, what was ultimately the contents of the canister that sprayed the lead character. Right. Uh, but the original goal of this of this lead alien, the smart alien was to use that that canister to power what was essentially a hidden uh, command module for the big spaceship so it could fly it up to the big spaceship. And apparently this one canister was then enough to actually power the big spaceship to fly back to their home planet. Right. And the problem I had with that is that if you all you needed was alien juice and apparently you collect this from <laughs> the canisters from discarded alien weapons. Right. And apparently alien weapons are being traded right. into the Nigerian <laughs> drug lords like candy – why didn't you just go, you know, collect up some alien weapons, tell your your friends what's going on, fill up your canister, and get back on the ship? And further, you were on that ship for like 18 months when you got to Earth before they cut into it to find you. Right. If you really wanted to get away, why didn't you just take the weapons when you were still up in the ship, power it up, and fly home? So there's just a lot of weirdness about why are we even in this position to begin with if all you needed to do was collect alien weapon juice power up your ship and fly home. I agree. That, so I, that, I had some, some problems with that. That part didn't make quite as much sense, because it wasn't like they had to grow something to reproduce this new fuel. It was They were quite seriously like collecting junk and trying to find little pieces of this fuel that they could use to combine into this small canister, which could power the, the sort of main command ship, which could then reattach with the ship and fly the whole ship home. And that one, yeah, didn't quite, didn't quite make a whole lot of sense. She's like, okay, really, guys? Like, it took you that long to collect this little bit of liquid? <laughs> yeah, 20 years? I mean, you've been scavenging weapons pile scraps for 20 years to come up with this, and yeah. it, just so you could power it up to go home. I mean, it, it felt that was one of those points where I felt like they stretched the realism of the alien story so that it could fit the necessity the, this, of, of, this, the human of the human slum parallel. kind of story. Yeah, I agree. So that, that for me was a problem. That was actually one of my biggest problems with, with the whole sort of plot of the, the I mean because that's really a core plot point I mean this core plot point is you have this alien who's trying to collect the the uh, necessary material to get his main ship flying so that he can in theory fly back to some planet to get help right. and, and I want to ask you guys that question because I thought at the beginning of the movie I thought they painted the picture the reason the spaceship ended up on Earth is because there was some problem with their home planet, they, yeah. you know, all right. Superman style. Right. But then apparently he was going to fly back there to get help or yeah, something I think, and come back in three I, years. I think that so was supposed to that? be just kind of the mystery of the we don't really know where they're from. We think they're refugees from a planet that, you know, blew up or something like that and they're stranded here. But I think, I think at the end, I guess we're supposed to infer that 
maybe this ship was just lost. You know, they had a bunch of workers and only one smart guy. They ran out of fuel and they had to they had to crash here. And maybe maybe <laughs> and, there is and discharge their guns to find yeah, enough fuel maybe, to fly. Maybe and... maybe there is a planet that they can go back to and get some help. Uh, I, I think that's what we're supposed to assume by the end, and that the the commentary by the sort of talking heads documentary people at the beginning is just well, we don't know. Sure. That I mean, I, that we really, and to be honest, for a movie that I'm not sure will have a sequel, that I have seen some some uh, quotes from uh, Neil Blomkamp saying that he definitely wants to make a sequel. Interesting. Well, th- um, there's definitely room left open for a sequel. Sure. In fact, perhaps we'll talk about the ending in just a second. Um, but for one of the key plot points, I felt as far as how did the ship get here and where was the guy going at the end, totally left unexplained, very much ambiguous. Uh, throughout the whole movie, but you raised a point earlier that I want to come back to. You said that we had this slum full of aliens, and it was a very different movie because these aliens apparently had no way to defend themselves. They were basically being uh, oppressed by the human uh, captors to some degree. Yet, throughout the movie, we see the absolute destructionary power of their weapons to the point (laughs) at which, at one point at which, the lead character and the lead alien character are able to actually storm like the, the central <laughs> MNU headquarters as two people and right. take out the entire like crack mercenary unit right. with a couple of alien guns, but apparently a whole two and a half million colony of these <laughs> aliens with apparently a stack or a stash of these weapons are just rendered useless against the bullets of humans. And that was another point for me. You know, it's like, and it, not only that, if you had that little the uh, the little um, like robot exoskeleton right. that they showed at the end of the movie. Why the hell are you letting like, the, the humans <laughs> put you in a cage? Right. No, I I agree. It's it, there's a little bit of confusion. I think again we're supposed to put it off to the point that they weren't quite too bright. They weren't. These were workers. They really didn't. They couldn't do things for themselves. They couldn't cause. They couldn't rise in a revolt by themselves. But this one smart guy could. But rather than trying to start a revolution, he wanted to just get home. I guess. But I agree. There's definitely some plot inconsistencies as why these aliens with such apparently amazing technology have not been, you know, storming this city and let themselves be be sort of tossed around and beat around. Especially even toward the end, we see that these workers by themselves are capable of manhandling people quite easily. <laughs> sure, right. They can just, like, rip, rip, rip lens off right. it at will. Uh, and even if you're not going to go attack MNU... You're basically captive by these Nigerian drug lords right. and handing them your weapons in exchange for the infamous cat food right. of this movie. Right. Why not just blow them? Like, Because <laughs> ultimately, take... ultimately they are blown to pieces by by the weaponry. Right. So, yeah. uh, I don't know. I, I, I will agree. say, speaking to the weapons, that the, the exoskeleton weapon that comes to life late in this movie is perhaps one of the coolest <laughs> weapons in cinema I have seen hands down in a long time. So, so let's, if, if let's, you don't mind the splatter that it creates, let's talk one of the coolest weapons a little ever. bit about this sort of last act of this film, which is basically... Well, uh, basically actually, if I can just oh, chime yeah, in. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I, I, I agree with what you guys are saying about the plot feeling a little inconsistent, or, or that for an action movie it could have been a little bit tighter in some of these regards. Right. And, I mean, I the reason why I think they did that is because because, at least in my interpretation, is they wanted to draw more parallels and more analogs to this sort of underlying human archetype story that they're telling, which, you know, I read strongly being sort of related to apartheid. You know, maybe the fact that the workers didn't seem to work is just because they weren't educated, which really would play in with South African history, those sorts of things. 
And so these little oddities, we get a little widened, they rise up with their own weapons and stuff like that. Is there because they're trying to draw the parallels to the human story that, in my mind, it's based upon, not because they're trying to make sense purely as an action movie? I agree. And I think, I think maybe what Todd said a bit of, they did sacrifice a little bit of narrative tightness to get that human analog across a bit more. Maybe that's that sort of falls into that camp. Uh, that they they do basically force these aliens to be to be the you know oppressed black people of apartheid by making them incapable of using their own apparently you know kick-ass weapons. <laughs> right. Uh, cool. So let's let's talk a little bit about the last act of this film. Uh, the last act is really sort of a balls to the wall action film. Like once they get these weapons and once they sort of make this last ditch effort to get to the uh, to get this command ship to the uh, the main ship so they can go home, uh, we really do get like some pretty intense action stuff, uh, including this big thing where uh, the main character Vikas gets to uh, basically walk around in this awesome walker machine, which has like a lightning gun, like a crazy chain gun, and a gravity gun that can shoot pigs. Uh, what what did you guys? How did you guys feel like that last half as an action film worked in general? Do you feel like it, it worked as a exciting enough action film? Anybody? Todd, go ahead. <laughs> I was gonna bow to Scott, so I don't don't dominate with my own excitement <laughs> for that weapon. But that I told you just a second ago, that weapon to me was one of the coolest Hollywood. Uh, weapons I've seen portrayed in a long time. I mean, it, it did things that we've all, in my mind at least, I've always wondered if you could do this, what would it look like? And one of the moments for me in that is that uh, you have all these Nigerian drug lords, kind of Superman style, <laughs> right? Or, or maybe it's more Matrix style. I'm not it's, sure it's, which. I think but it's a bit more Matrix style. <laughs> they're basically powering this uh, this exoskeleton uh, sort of mech warrior. With uh, with bullets, so they're just spraying him with all these bullets, and it, he basically holds up a uh, I don't know if you want to call it anti gravity or magnetic it's, field. It's it, uh, if you played Half Life Two, it's a gravity gun. <laughs> a gravity gun, and it basically caps, catches all the bullets in this little gravity field right in front of it. So all the bullets come at it, and it ends up with this big ball of floating <laughs> bullets right in front of it. And then once they've all run out of bullets, it essentially just reverses the polarity and just basically blows every person standing in the room away with all the bullets they'd previously shot at it. And you know, it's just one of those things like, holy cow. <laughs> like, I've always wanted to do right. that. <laughs> not, not in reality, of course. I'm not a serial killer here. But, I've always know. wanted to kill everyone with their own bullets. <laughs> like, I've always wanted to be able to say, if bullets are coming at me, like, stop, right. wait, now kill Back. everybody that shot at me. <laughs> right. No. So, and that, and then, like, when it first comes up to life, and I, I'll leave out kind of the weirdness of how that all happens in the first place, but when it comes to life, it basically multi-targets four or four of the bad guys simultaneously, and right. just basically does the splatter treatment to them, right. just zaps them, and <laughs> just blow to goo right. instantly. So, for me, it was one of the, it, it was almost so impressive and so dominant, you couldn't believe that it could be defeated. It was just that... I mean, it was way more impressive for me than any Terminator in the Terminator 2 movie. Yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, Scott, what, how did you how did you like the the action last act of this film? I, I mean, I think there were some great sequences, but I felt like the third act actually was a little bit flabby um, <laughs> in the sense that, you know, I guess there's sort of two main action set pieces, them breaking into the M&U building and then the shootout at the very end. And... Up to the MNU building, I guess I was okay with it as far as an action movie. After that, it felt like it was bound to just sort of be like, oh, yes, there's some plot points we set up earlier, like angry Nigerians or this right. and that and the other thing. 
And, you know, we'll sort of have to variously trail through those until the movie ends, you know, activated. Uh, and, and I mean, I, I thought there were some sequences that were fine, like the like the Mech Warrior and those sorts of things. But uh, overall, I think it could have been a little bit tighter. And I mean, also, we can get to this. You guys can, can say what you think. But do you think the very last shot of the film was necessary? I'm trying to remember what the last shot of the film was. The, the flower shot? Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, 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 I liked it. I thought it was... I, I, I thought it was a little too American. They should have left us with, with more of a European ending where she says, mystery. well, I got this flower, and then it ends. I, th- I think it gave it a bit of a darker tone on the end, which is we're supposed... So the, by the end of this film, we're not quite sure where the main character is en- ends up, and uh, they give us a hint that, oh, maybe he's still alive, but then they also like hint, no, he's probably not, maybe. <laughs> it's like... His his life depends on whether you watch this film enough to give it a sequel. <laughs> well, so there's there's this interesting plot to the movie, and since we're kind of talking at this point, I want to make sure Dustin, you can come back and comment yeah, on sure, the other ahead. stuff. But uh, it, and this is probably you know I've mentioned a few things now where I probably left the movie not energized. You know, one of them was the serious tone of the movie and the, the subjects it addresses. Sure. You know, the other is probably some of the inconsistencies in the plot where they – I definitely agree with both you and Scott here where they sacrifice them willingly to tell a more human story. Uh, but the other is that the movie kind of is built on this idea that uh, the main character, Weakest, befriends this alien because the alien can help cure his uh, DNA integration with the alien species. Right. Uh, because up on the mothership apparently is supposed to be equipment that can do that. Yet, at this turning point of the action in the movie, the, the alien character sees what the humans are doing to the aliens in the laboratories and basically then says to Weakus, well, I can fix you, but it's going to take three years. Right. And when I first heard that, I thought, oh, wow, that equipment is just kind of slow. It's going to take him three years to kind of fix him up on the spaceship. But we come to learn, no, he means he's going to leave. Right. <laughs> and, and, like, and three years later, he's going to come back and, and then fix him. But we already know from the context of the movie that this disease or this integration we'll take... is probably going to be completely done in like a week. That's a good point. <laughs> so, so we're basically being told at that point that I'm going to let you completely become an alien, and then I'll come back in three years and somehow <laughs> can turn you back completely human. Right. Um, which doesn't make a lot of sense because you'd seem like if this process was taking over your body, you'd need to stop it before it was right. completely done. <laughs> Um, and that, to me, was another one of those sort of bit dissatisfying elements is that, like Scott said, at the end we have this scene where we see what is essentially the guy completely converted to an alien. Oh, um, oh you know, that's, I didn't even capture that. That's that's right. That's why we see the alien making the flower. It's that's, yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay, I, I, I'm a little slow. <laughs> Going to have to help me here. But I, I totally understand that now. Okay, okay. got it. We, we essentially see his full transition to his alien state, but his humanness still coming through in the right. fact he's creating these flowers that he's leaving for his wife, uh, waiting, in theory, for that <laughs> return of his friend. Right. It's a bit dissatisfying because ultimately, after all of this movie, the lead character still succumbs to the, the disease he was exposed to at the beginning, and the alien friend that was supposed to help him still flies home and <laughs> leaves him stranded, and his wife goes were, you know, without her husband. Though we're not so. quite sure whether he's still capable of coming back and reverting him to his former self. Possible. Maybe. Though we're left with this promise that in three years, I promise I'll be back. In three years, I promise I'll be back I, and actually, um, wait. to fix you in theory. So, I mean, so one of the parts of the kind of documentary style I actually liked, they do sort of leave things open as like, you know, in three years, will they come back and take all their people home? Will they come back and declare war on 
on Earth for what they've done to their people. I did kind of like the fact that they left it a little ambiguous to the point that, you know, this guy's basically seen the worst of that human beings can do to, to another sentient human being, and he might come back and, like, destroy the Earth. <laughs> and he has probably good reason to at this point. So, uh, it certainly leaves that door open. Let's talk sequel in just a minute, because some interesting things to talk about that. But um, with regards to the ending and this whole, like, three years thing, and Dustin, I don't know if you got to comment on the weaponry and that, that final action scene. How did you feel about okay, all that? Okay, so I just, I just want to say that I actually enjoyed the last act of this film more than any other point of the film. I felt actually the, the rest of the film was a little flabby and a little slow. I felt like they... Again, they used way too many establishing shots, way too many like slow-down camera shots just to prove that they were sh doing all these different kinds of cameras. And I didn't feel like it really picked up until you got like this this kind of motion action where everything is going very quickly. And I actually, I actually thought the last the last act of this film was really good. I love the action sequences. Uh, really enjoyed the mech the mech battle thing and the little lightning gun that like exploded people. Actually, I enjoyed that entire sequence. So. Uh, I would definitely say that's, that was my favorite part of this film, and I actually wish they could have played it a bit more action-y from the start. But, but uh, that's that's my comment on this as an action film. Uh, so before we talk a little bit about the sequels, and I know we're running a little bit long, but but uh, you know obviously there's a lot of good things to talk about. So uh, one thing I want to say is we all I think kind of agree that this is a film that basically was trying to make us a bit of a social commentary on apartheid and and in the way that. Africans are treated in general. Uh, my question to you is, did you find that effective? Like, apartheid was sort of an 80s thing. Like, it's not really a, something that's part of our generation of people. And in fact, most most young people probably, if you told them apartheid, they'd be like, I have no idea what that is. Uh, did you did you find that social commentary effective in the way that, you know, Africans were treated in South Africa back in the 80s and maybe are still treated in other areas? Like, Darfur, but not quite in the same vein. Uh, Scott, Scott, what did you? What did you? I know you like this, the social commentary, of this, but did you find it effective considering the the time period? Um, well, I, I mean, I, I guess I sort of preface my comments by saying I we like that the best out of all the things going on in this film. Huh. Um, and, and I mean, maybe that's just to me. I, I'm not a history buff by any means, but I've certainly read a lot about apartheid, and you know. Uh, seen films and stuff from the era and it's you know I'm, I'm always one for you know uh, the to be very excited emotionally about something that's a completely dysphoric environment for people you know especially when it's you know holocaust sure. apartheid those sorts of things um, and, and I mean like I said since we all sort of seem to agree that they put some of the potential of this film as an action sci-fi to the side in order to make those points that I'm reasonably willing to give them credit for doing so. And I, I mean, as far as it being too old for our generation, I mean, that, that may be the case, but there's still a lot of people who remember it. And unless you really had your head in the sand, I mean, it, it was sort of a big deal. Sure. You know, it it's not as notorious as, as, say, the Holocaust or, you know, the gulags of Soviet Russia. but Or even, even the, you know, still, the you know, race conditions in America of the, you know, all of you know civil war up through the you know 1960s right um but i mean i i think to some extent that's more of a cultural thing um sure. for us as americans i mean i think if you went and talked to europeans they would be much more familiar with apartheid sure. certainly if you went and spoke to africans about it sure uh todd what, what did you think about the effectiveness of the the social commentary of this film 
I, mean, I knew it was there from the overtones, but I re it really was not that effective for me in terms of drawing parallels to um, to the real world events. Other than that, it was obvious that that was what they were trying to do. Sure. In other words, I I'm not super familiar with the details of that period of African history. I mean, I know that it was a big deal from the from the what the late '40s to the uh, early '90s, right. uh, and certainly a big part of Africa's history, but. Uh, I think perhaps Scott's right. For U.S. audiences, probably not a really familiar topic. Um, clearly, they were trying to make some social commentary. But for me, this was supposed to be a sci-fi movie. I mean, this movie was supposed to be about the aliens. Um, right. And I kind of didn't even I, – I almost at a conscious level tried not to draw too much social commentary out of the movie because I didn't want it to distract from the idea of these aliens. Um, but I feel like the director almost – made it unavoidable. I mean, because of these sacrifices made in other spots, you kind of had to accept that there was social commentary being made in order for you to accept the movie in the way it was made. I mean, with these holes in the otherwise alien plot, you had to accept they were there for some other reason, like this social commentary. Sure. But, uh, I mean, keeping it succinct, which I've already failed to do, it, <laughs> it wasn't necessary. It was there. But if you just ignored it, it wouldn't be a huge distraction. You just recognize that there's some kind of parallel to human suffering being drawn with the aliens. Right. Yeah, I, I think I, I guess I, I fall somewhere in the middle. I, I did enjoy the social commentary, not from the this is a model of apartheid and let's remember apartheid. I enjoy it more from the concept of let's take that model and apply it to, to a thought concept, which is what if you know aliens came down and we were able to basically control them is is this how we would treat people that are not like us even even in our modern sort of uh civilized era where we feel like we're past apartheid or past you know civil rights violations we're past this sort of segregation stuff could we could we jump back into this model if if the beings we were thinking about seemed so much less like us and i think the fact that you see basically this you know this disconcern for these aliens from both the sort of the leftover whites from the from the British occupation and the the Boers from uh, South Africa and also the residents of South Africa sort of saying you know we know we don't like these people we want them to get out that fact that you see this humans versus them sort of mentality that that's where I think this this film worked on a level for me as an interesting thought experiment but as far as I think overall social commentary I found the movie uh, Children of Men which is another dystopian future concept, uh, far, far more moving as far as social commentary. Like, that that movie, like, like hits me to the core of saying, I could totally see in 10 years if something like that happened, that would be how the Earth would be. Like, there's nothing in there I could see not being the case. And I found that I found that movie far more effective as a social commentary than I think I found District 9's sort of slapped on apartheid reference which it, it just didn't hit me that much like i don't feel like we're in the era of apartheid anymore so right and, and for clarity for the the people who may not know who are still with us here <laughs> uh neil blomkamp is from south africa so this is very much part of his his own personal history uh in terms of being very familiar with that that um that part of the world so you know maybe much more relevant to him, to him. and probably impacts him much more than a North American which audience. actually makes makes a whole lot more sense uh cool uh so uh, we're we're still running long but I think we have at least one more thing to talk about and that's uh I think sequel potential for this film uh I mean clearly they left the doors wide open for a sequel for the you know the aliens coming back or something like that but 
do you guys would you guys do you guys want to see a sequel? Would you like to see a sequel? Uh, would you prefer to see Neil Blomkamp go on and do something else like like maybe the Halo movie like he was tapped for again? I'll straight up say I do not want to see a sequel to this movie, and not because it has anything to do with the quality of this movie. I just think this is one of those stories better left sort of, you know, it had a beginning, it had an end. Sure, it has the ability to sort of stretch on a sequel, but I feel like a sequel would probably try to either, it would either do one of two things. It would either try to keep the movie in the same vein as District 9, and presumably the the sequel would be District 10, (laughs) uh, which would just kind of be kind of too much of the same thing, or it would go some different direction and would leave you kind of you know disjoint like how do these two movies connect right um it's like you know if the next movie is some kind of like um aliens you know the aliens come back and just totally you know romp up on on humans it's like how does that at all relate to these docile creatures (laughs) of the first movie so i don't know i think this is better left as one of those complex stories that it's told in a single movie and i i kind of hope he moves on to something new something different and frankly halo is not what i i hope he moves on to interesting uh, Scott, what about you? Uh, I, I think I could stomach a District 10. I, it would be easier to go without one if it wasn't, as I said, for that very last parting shot in this film, um, which is sort of like, oh, come on. Uh, as far as doing Halo, uh, I, I, I have a quote from you, Mr. Anglin, uh, the younger here. <laughs> I absolutely adore Blowcamp's mixing of sci-fi imagery with stock footage. Um, Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not nearly as... Uh, I'm pretty lukewarm on the style. I don't know if I would buy it as far as Halo is concerned. Halo has always been very sort of a mythical, you know, epic sort of feel that, that would be much more suited to a, a more traditional cinematic style in my interpretation. No, I, you know, I think I, I agree with you guys. Uh, to me... I would only be interested, I think, in a District 10 if they took the last act of this film, the action parts of it, and they made a full-up, like, action film out of it. Because I think there are definitely cool sequences. I love the way the action stuff was shot in this film. I love the concepts they used for doing action in a very unique handicam style way. Actually remind me a lot of Children of Men, which I actually enjoyed the action sequences there. Uh, so that's that's about the only reason I think I would love to see it. I don't feel like you could hold on the social commentary bit for another film. I almost feel like that would just seem ridiculous at this stage. And I, I feel like the only thing you could do past this point is a more thriller action kind of film, which I actually think I would go see. That said, I, I definitely agree that as long as Blomkamp sticks to this style, and so far it's the only style we've really been able to see from him, I don't think he would be the right person to do a Halo film. I mean, clearly... Though I did like the the Halo shorts he did, if a Halo film was made, it would have to be in the the epic style. It would have to be in the these the classic cinematic narrative style of filmmaking. And I, I really don't think that the style he showed in District Nine, as cool as it is, and as much as I I love the freshness of it, would fit in a Halo film. So I agree. I'll just add this onto that. Apparently, uh, as reported online here, and, and source somewhat irrelevant. Uh, but he, Neil Blomkamp is, is quoted in Entertainment Weekly as saying, I would do anything to go back to the world of District 9 again or District 10. Because um, they do set up District 10 as being the place they're being relocated to. So, Absolutely. And he's further quoted as saying that would be interested in would be interested in making a straight-up horror film if the opportunity presented itself. So 
he's, he seems to lean on that horror side of sci-fi, right. so who knows what we'll see from him in the future. Well, that's cool. I mean, I, I definitely look forward to seeing to see what he does. I feel like he's definitely definitely proven that he uh, he has the chops to do uh, fairly mainstream directorial work, and uh, hopefully this, this movie is going to be as successful as it looks like it's being, and uh, we'll see more stuff out of him. Maybe not Halo, though. Uh, actually, as, as, as an interesting side note, uh, a while back there were some rumors that Steven Spielberg was kind of sniffing around at the Halo franchise, seeing how popular it was when, uh, when his first announcer was going to be a Halo film, and that maybe he's interested in doing a, a Halo film. What would you guys say to a Spielberg Halo film? You know what? I would endorse it if they took CG away from him. I would I, <laughs> limit his limit his brain to what he used to do with film, and I'd be interested. If you give him CG, I'm not interested. So, so if you break his legs and say, make a film, Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> He'd make a better film. <laughs> no, I, I, I think I agree. Scott, what about you? Spielberg I, I think and given, <laughs> You know, maybe, maybe the classic Spielberg who gave us, you know, Jaws and Jurassic Park, but yeah. the... The, the Spielberg who gives us Munich and War of the Worlds uh, and Indiana and, Jones you know, AI. For... <laughs> Back to <the> CG Spielberg. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I not, not I mean, not not only do not sort of have the what should I call it? You know, utterly honest, you know, sort of flavor of early Spielberg, but you're left with all of his emotional manipulativeness. Now mixed with all this campy garbage, <laughs> you know, straight out of computer-generated imagery. So, uh, you know, I'd like to see no particular director necessarily jumps to mind um, who I would like more than him, you know. Uh, but I certainly wouldn't put him very high on the list. Yeah, <laughs> Certainly no higher than George Lucas. Yeah, yeah, I, would, and... <laughs> I would say as, as long as they guarantee that George Lucas would not be able to speak to Spielberg the entire time while he was producing the film, maybe <laughs> I might be on board. Maybe we'll get Spielberg to do a, uh, a Terminal-style uh, <laughs> remake of, of Halo or District <laughs> 10 where we've got the Halo Master Chief or a, a, uh, a uh, prawn stuck in an airport. <laughs> For a year. Oh my! Getting his passport denied. <laughs> yeah. So I, I mean, yeah. Let, let's hope that Peter Jackson finds a clone of himself to direct. You know, actually, I think I could watch a Peter Jackson Halo film. I think that would be. I was about to say, where's Peter Jackson? All this. I mean, now he's he was like the uh, the cheerleader for Neil Blomkamp in this movie. But what's he doing these days? He's so actually, I actually put a a trailer of his film out Not the last, last week. Uh, he's doing a new film called The Lovely Bones. But that's another episode. We've gone way, way too long over. <laughs> Thanks everyone who uh, who stayed in the podcast listening this long. Uh, uh, as you can tell, District 9 is clearly a film that spawns a lot of great conversation and you know the best films that you can see are the ones that spawn, I think, the best conversations. So uh, definitely go out, go check out District 9. I think we're all saying this is something that's worth seeing in theaters if you're a fan of that genre, you know, if, 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 you know, Julie and Julia is the kind of film that's like your perfect film. This is probably not your perfect film, but, uh, uh, definitely something worth seeing and definitely something I think is going to be a, a big name as we talk about, I think maybe best films of 2009. 
but till next time, thanks again for joining us <laughs> on Weekly Monotony. Uh, as, and as always, come back to DailyMonotony.com as often as you can for the latest uh, previews, reviews of games and movies and all that wonderful stuff that comes out of the world of entertainment. And until next time, uh, looking for an outline, gentlemen. What you got? Uh, if you eat our arm, you can podcast like this. <laughs> yeah.